All right, um, so would you do this with me? Would you stand for the reading of God's word? We will be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28. Here's what it says. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of God. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the privilege, thank you for the honor of reading your word with my family and the opportunity to speak of you, our our king. And what we really need to hear today is your voice. We need to hear you speak. And and Spirit, would you minister to our hearts the the way only you can? May Christ be seen as lovely. Would, Would Christ be honored and glorified? Fill us with the joy of salvation this morning. Wherever we are at, whatever our, our story um, has brought to us this week, whatever um, valleys or, or mountaintops we've been on, Lord, would you meet us here today by the power of your spirit, through your word, amongst your people for your glory. We love you. We need you. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And because of the grace of God, I am what I am. These are the words of John Newton. You might have heard that name before. He wrote uh, the hymn, Amazing Grace. He was a minister of the Word of God. He was a pastor. Uh, he was a key figure in the, the abolition of the slave trade. And he wrote these words. And these are the words of a man who deeply knows what it means to be changed by radical grace. These are the words of someone who knows what it means to be being changed by grace. And these are the words of someone who knows the message that Paul is preaching in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now we've been in 1 Thessalonians now for for a while, and today we bring it to a close. So quick word on, on this letter. Paul wrote this heartfelt letter to the church in Thessalonica, which was a church he and his friends, his ministry partners, Silas and, and Timothy, uh, all planted. And this letter wasn't written too long after they had planted the church. Paul has great affection for the church. And he wants to be with them, but because of violent opposition to uh, the gospel of King Jesus, uh, Paul is not there in the city right now, so he writes them this letter. Now, throughout these chapters, we've explored many things, and today we are going to see how Paul weaves them all together. He takes all these different strands, he weaves them together, and he aims them right at Jesus Christ. And so in summation of the letter, if we kind of pull back to the 30,000-foot view, uh, you could describe this letter, you could sum up this letter with two phrases. 
the present holy living of the church, the present holy living of the church, and the future return of Jesus the King. As I stepped back thinking through um, how to wrap this thing up, it, that was really helpful for me. They're like flip sides of the same coin. And, that, and these are the things he hits on over and over again. The present holy living of the church and the future return of King Jesus. So how we live, how we inhabit this world, and what, or rather who, is coming. Now, these themes weave together throughout the whole thing, holy living and hopeful anticipation of Jesus' return. So in every chapter, Paul, from some angle, is talking about what does it mean to be the people of God, those who are holy. And at the end of every chapter, maybe you notice this as you read through, maybe not, um, and maybe if you have your, your, your pencil or your pen um, and your notes or in your, your Bible or your digital Bible, highlight these passages because you're going to see there's a pattern, there's, there's a rhythm, there's a design to what Paul did. At the end of every chapter, Paul talks about the, the return of Jesus. So um, here's the deal. Paul lives in the present moment in light of, of the future, in light of the promises that are coming. He's a hope-driven person. He wants the Thessalonians to be hope-driven people. And the Spirit wants us to be hope-driven people as well, which is why we have this book. So, so watch how this pattern plays out. This will just help us get ready to look at the last verses, okay? So at the end of chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, Paul says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the day of the Lord. That's the return of Jesus. Now go to the end of chapter 2. We see the same thing. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at this coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Again, the return of Jesus is there at the end of chapter 2. Turn to the end of chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. He goes on and says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father when at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Again, the return of King Jesus at the end of chapter 3, tied to holiness in the present moment. Chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So again, right? The return of King Jesus. And then what do you think you find at the end of chapter 5 at the end of the book? Same thing. Verses 23 and 24 in chapter 5. And this is where we're going we're gonna to sit down in this text for a while. Okay, We're going to nestle into it and, and work our way through it. But here's what it says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Again, right, the return of King Jesus. And here we see these two themes tightly woven together, holy living, sanctification, and Jesus' return. So, again, Paul's talked a lot about holiness throughout this whole letter. It's crucial to him 
that the Thessalonians are living holy lives. In other words, it's crucial to him that they are living in light of the truth of, of the reality of who Jesus is, that they don't just live by some profession or some mental assent, but that reality has gotten into their bones and into their heart and is bleeding out in their actions and all they think and say and do, that they are to actually be those who follow Jesus. But here's, here's the question, and, and here's um, what I think we really need to dig through. Like, what in the world is holiness? It's a word we've all heard before, right? But, but there's a religious vibe to it. There's a vagueness to it. And I think a lot of us would be hard-pressed if we were asked, what really is holiness? By somebody who's new you know, to church, maybe you're new, and you're like, what in the world is it? Well, how would we talk about it? What is holiness? So, here in our passage, you see that word sanctify there in the top line? Um, that word sanctify is hagizo. It's, it's a fun Greek word. Um, and it means to make something holy. To sanctify something means to make it holy. But again, what is holiness? Well, holy. The idea of holiness is, is to be set apart for a special purpose. To be set apart for a special purpose. Set apart from the common, from the ordinary Everyday use for some special purpose. Think of someone or something dedicated for a special purpose. So uh, an illustration here. Um, in our home, we have, just like you, we have a, a dish set, a long-living dish set up in our cupboards. Now, our long-living dish set is matte black, and we got it uh, for our wedding um, from Target, you know, because we went way upscale. Uh, so we, we got it from, from Target, and we've used it every day since. So for 16 years, we've used this same old black matte dish set. And I guarantee you it's chipped, it's dinged, it's scraped, it's well-loved, okay? But it's not holy. Even if we put it in the dishwasher, you know, that set, and it comes out sparkling clean, it's not holy. But here's the deal, and this might sound weird, uh, but we have a holy plate. We actually have a holy plate. It's this bright crimson red plate with white letters on it. And I think some of you probably have the same thing because you have the same tradition in your house. And in, in these white letters along this red plate, you know what it says? This is a happy birthday one, right? It says happy birthday. So here's the deal with this plate. How many times a year does this plate come out? There's five of us in the family. Five, right? This plate comes out five days a year. And when our, when our kids wake up on their birthday and they come downstairs to the table, at their place at the table is this bright glowing red plate and suddenly they know this is a special day. This is, this is the day. They know that there's gonna be good food on that plate. They know their favorite meal is gonna be on the plate. They know there's gonna be a cupcake or some kind of cake on that plate. They know that that plate is dedicated to something special and set apart from all the other days of the year, right? Something special is happening. That day has a different purpose than the day before it and the day after it. We have a holy plate, right? Don't quote me out of context on that one, Okay. My son has a holy stuffed animal. Again, I use quotations of these whole holy stuffed animal, a ragged old kitty cat with blue eyes that he has had since he's been just the littlest of guy. And it's, it, it's his stuffy. You know what I mean? Like, it's his stuffy. 
All my kids have their little holy blankets, right? They're baby blankets. No other blanket will take the place of these baby blankets. You could heap all the biggest, cushiest, warmest blankets on top of them, and they still want their holy little blanket. Why? Because it provides something else. It's set apart from all other blankets. It's set apart for their comfort, right? It's their special little blanket. It has a special purpose. So biblically speaking, Aaron... Moses' brother, the high priest, he was set apart, separated from all other Israelites as the high priest to offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people and mediate between God and his people. Remember the burning bush? What's the ground called? Holy ground, right? When Yahweh meets Moses at the burning bush, the ground is holy ground. Why? Because it's set apart for that time, for that encounter where God would meet in glowing presence with Moses. It was set apart. The room in which the Ark of the Covenant was located in the tabernacle was called the holy place. Right? The holy place. Why? It was set apart. That's where they would go to meet God. It wasn't like the rest of the camp. It was special, set apart. The Old Covenant feasts, the festivals, they made time itself holy. Those days, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, Sukkot, Pentecost, those days themselves were set apart. The Sabbath, the Sabbath's called holy. Now think about what's the definition of holy to be set apart. What's the Sabbath? It's the day of the week that's set apart to be different than the rest of the days of the week, right? Holy. So Paul prays that the Lord of peace would set these Thessalonians apart completely. That they would be set apart for their God-ordained purpose. To bear his, his image, to live in accordance with their beautiful design as his image bearers. As those who would, would be um, uh, heaven, so to speak, on this earth. Showing the love of God. Seeking flourishing for all of creation. And notice, by the way, he's called the God of peace. What's that Hebrew word for peace? We've talked about it before. Shalom, right? Shalom. But here's the deal with shalom. It's not just the absence of conflict. It is the presence of flourishing. All things as they ought to be interwoven for total well-being. That is what God is up to. He's redeeming and restoring, putting all the things out of socket, back into socket, all the things that need to be in place, in place, separating those things that shouldn't be together and putting those things that should be together. That is what he's doing in this world. And God himself will do this, it says. He will set them apart from all the broken ways of this world and, and he will do it completely. Completely. This, Paul doubles down on this idea here. He says completely, um, holy, um, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, holy, if you know what I mean. Um, spirit, soul, and body, the entirety of one's being is going to be set aside for the special purpose of bearing God's image in this world. See, as apprentices of Jesus, all of our life is under the lordship of Christ, right? It's not just a time slot on, on Sunday. It's not just when we do devotions throughout the week. It's all of our life. All of our life is to be sanctified, set aside. Our thought life, right? Um, our, our wallet, our, our bank account, 
um, our bedroom, our conversations, our, our hard drives, um, our social media accounts, all of it is under the lordship of Christ. And that means our physicality, our, our flesh is set aside. And this affirms that, that we are bodily beings, right? Um, that there's thoughts and philosophies out there that we're just kind of trapped in this stuff, right? Um, that the real us is just this, this kind of wisp inside and this kind of like a flesh prison and someday we'll, we'll be out of it and really be who we are. But, but that's not the understanding of, of the biblical world. The, the word for uh, soul, nephesh, means body included. It's all of us, the totality of our beings. We don't just have a body, right? We, we are a body. We're more than this, but we are this as well. And when we are resurrected, we will have a resurrected body, right? Eternal flesh and blood. So when Jesus comes, we have a resurrected body. The body is not shameful, although it's often used for shameful things. The body is a good gift that he gives us that we might give back in return to glorify him and love people well. So when he comes back, when all things are made right, the totality of our being, our, our emotions, um, our volitions, the, the, our, our desires, our, our choices, our, our affections, our, our actions, all that we are is meant to be an instrument of his glory. And we will live as we were designed to live. Right now, it's like the orchestra is just tuning up. You know, it sounds all messy. But someday the orchestra will stop tuning. And someday when he comes back, that symphony of his love will be played perfectly throughout all eternity. Now, um, let's do this here. Let's, let's uh, stop and clarify this. Uh, because when we talk about holiness, I bet there's all sorts of baggage that comes from all our different religious traditions. Like, what does it mean to be holy? I'm sure some kind of image pops up in, in our heads, right? So if holiness sounds abstract, if it sounds completely uh, joyless, um, if it sounds hard to connect with, then, then do this. Think of holiness as Christ-likeness. Think of holiness as christ Likeness. Suddenly it can become a lot more concrete. Jesus puts skin and bones to holiness. There was no one more down to earth, more joyful, more welcoming, more accessible, and more holy than Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image of holiness. Holiness with, with dirt on the soles of his feet. Holiness in the flesh. So what does holiness look like? Well, we need to look to Jesus. It's not just some abstract concept of, of perfection that we try to work up based on our own kind of Greek Western Enlightenment ideals. We're actually given what holiness looks like. And his name is Jesus. So if you want to model for holy living... You don't have to go read all the philosophies out there and find the right kind of grid of, of ethics. You look at Christ. And he models for us what holy living is. Look at Christ. So now that we've kind of got that in front of us, now we can get to a practical and helpful definition of sanctification. That's a big expensive word, um, but it's important for us as followers of Jesus to know. 
So here's what sanctification is. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus through the power of his spirit. Sanctification is a process of becoming more like Jesus through the power of his spirit. So as, as followers of Christ, uh, theology and doctrine, it's important for us because it's basically saying what truth is. Um, and so as, when we become followers of Jesus, um, we, we're regenerated, we're born again, we're made anew. He breathes his breath into us. We, we come alive by the power of his spirit. That's regeneration and we're justified. Right? We're, we're, we're reconciled to God. Justification. But it's not done there. It's not like, okay, you're born again, you're reconciled, never gonna sin again, like game over, you're, you're good to go. Like, has anybody had that experience? Like, you became a follower of Christ and then you were like him, day one, game over. Right, now you're just kind of twiddling your thumbs waiting for heaven to come. That's not how it works. We enter into a whole lifelong process of transformation that's called sanctification. We are becoming more and more like him through the power of his spirit. And that sounds really daunting, right? To be completely sanctified. I mean, some of us, me this week, I didn't even feel partially sanctified. You go on vacation with your family and you have three little kids. There's moments in the day where you're like, I don't even know how to spell sanctification. Like, I'm certainly not sanctified. My brain can't even function and I'm not being a good dad right now. But this is not like a yikes, how am I gonna do this? Here's the good news. He will do this. We can all breathe. He will do this. It's his grip, it's his strength, it's his faithfulness. It's not our grip, it's not our strength, it's not our faithfulness, because ours falters. We will be unfaithful, we will fail, but he won't. He himself will sanctify us through his spirit. He will finish what he started. He's coming back and he is with us, growing us in Christ's likeness by the power of his spirit. So that's why this verse here, Paul says, he who calls you is faithful. This is verse 24. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Now this gets lost in, in the English because um, uh, it says, he who calls you. I'm sure your text is he who calls you. Um, but, but in the Greek, it's present tense. What does that matter? He who is calling you. He who is calling you. In other words, he didn't just call you and then throw you out into the world on your own and say, okay, I called you, figure it out. It says, he who is calling you. He's called you. Yes, he has called you definitively before creation, within creation, at a specific time. But now, he's speaking to you through his word and through his spirit. He is calling out to you that you might become like him. His word is coming to you actively in the moment that you live, whether you're going through the hell of some new sorrow and grief that you, you never would have imagined could have come to you, or whether you're just going through life and you're just feeling apathetic and you're numb, or whether everything's great. He's there speaking and calling to you through his word, through his spirit. He hasn't left you alone. He is with us, at work in us, and at work among us. Now, at this point, um, I want us to see what Paul's doing here because this is so cool. Okay, this is so cool. Paul is, he's a creature of the word. He's a person of the word. And we, we talked about that. We want to be people of the word. God, God calls. We respond, right? 
He is first, and then we are secondary. We respond. We're people of the word. Paul's saturated in the scriptures. He's just saturated them in them. He's steeped in them. His imagination has been transformed by the word of God. God's narrative on the world is the lens and the grid through which Paul sees. He's been shaped. His imagination has been shaped by God's promises. So when Paul says, God will do this, for us we go, oh, that's a nice little note of hope that Paul adds. No, no. That is the tip of an iceberg of a whole understanding of the narrative. God uh, has promised things and Paul knows us. So what Paul's doing is he's taking his knowledge of the scriptures and says, ah, God has promised he will do this. He has promised it. See, he, Paul knows the story of Abraham and Isaac. Remember that story? Abraham and Isaac. Uh, Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac and, and the angel stops him. And, and there's a sacrifice provided in, in Isaac's place. And it says there in that passage in Genesis 22 that um, that mountain of salvation, that mountain of salvation will be called the Lord will provide or the Lord will see to it or the Lord will do it. Ra'ah, the Lord will see to it and, and make sure it's done. Do you know what mountain that is, by the way? That's the same mountain. That's Calvary where Christ died. The Lord will see to it. The same mountain. Paul's brain has Ezekiel on it. Let me read you a few verses from Ezekiel. And the reason why is, not just, I don't want to flood you with scripture, but I want us to see the integrity of the scripture and what Paul's doing as he's pointing to Christ, tying it all back to all of scripture. So Ezekiel chapter 37. I know it's not everyone's favorite book. It's a, it's a hard one to get through, but it's brilliant. Um, Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 12 through 14. Um, maybe do this if maybe you can look at the screen if you want but maybe close your eyes and listen to the rhythm listen to the words of what I'm about to read this is God speaking to his people through the prophet Ezekiel here's what he says behold I will open your graves and raise you from your graves O my people and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. He goes on in verses 26 and 28. I will make a covenant of peace with them, it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who, help me out here, who sanctifies Israel. Sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Who is the true temple? Jesus Christ, the place where humanity and God meet, the place of the sacrifice of torn flesh and reconciliation. Jesus is that sanctuary. He has come. God dwells with his people. And when he dwells amidst his people, 
He will sanctify them. He will set them apart. When Paul uses this quick line, and he will do it, his brain is flooded with the whole story of God's faithfulness, and he is drawing the Thessalonians into this narrative, saying God has planned to do it from day one. He's doing it now, and he will finish what he started. Guys, the Bible, come on. So good. So good. Oh, and this, I don't have this on a slide for you, but it's Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 verse, uh, chapter 5 verse 26. Ephesians 5 verse 26. Write write that down. Um, But but here's what uh, it says. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Christ loves you. He loved us, gave his life for us that he might set us apart to enter into the purpose, the design, the reason why we are created. Isn't that awesome? It's, it's all throughout this whole thing. Okay, now we could spend all day walking through those promises. We don't have time. Um, but what we need to see is this, that he will do this. He will do this. And this brings us hope and humility. So let me say it this way. I hope this helps you. Apprentices of Jesus are a people in process. Apprentices of Jesus are a people in process, growing in Jesus' likeness, fully dependent upon his spirit on their way to an assured happy end. And if that's true, then this means humility and hope mark our days. Humility, guys, we are a people in process. We don't have it all buttoned up and figured out. No matter where you are, it doesn't matter if you've been walking uh, in your journey for 16 to 60 years or, or six months. Wherever we are in our journey following the master, we are still not the master. <laughs> Which means we have a way to go. We still need his grace. We still need his mercy. We still need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We still need to feast on his word and ingest hope and truth. We still need his indwelling presence, fighting our indwelling sin and muscle memory of years of rebellion. One does not have a soapbox to stand on and gloat over others when they come into the kingdom. Rather, we all kneel at the same stained ground at the foot of the cross. We are a dependent people. When we forget that, by the way, uh, when we forget that we are a people in process, we become poisoned by pride. And it causes a lot of hurt and a lot of damage and a lot of disunity. So um, let's remember our blessed in processness. As we remember that, then we're dependent. And we know that he is the one who has to do this because without him, we're just, we're toast. Um, So that's humility. Hope, he will do it. He will work through our deepest sufferings. He will work through our celebrations and conform us to his image. In another letter, uh, Philippians, Paul says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. At the day of Jesus Christ. That's when he comes, when he comes back. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is called the, the founder and, and the perfecter, or, or, or the author and the finisher of our faith. He will bring this to its glorious culmination. 
He will make good on his promises. He's faithful. Now, how does he do this? How? Well, here, um, there's three things in the last couple of verses that I want to draw out that we've already hit on throughout the last couple of months. How does he do this? Meditation on his word, unceasing prayer, and life together. There's a reason why those are the three foundational practices of apprenticeship that we are throwing ourselves into. They're throughout the entirety of scripture. So let's look at the last few verses. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28. I'll, I'll reread those just to, to load those into our mind here. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Okay, so first um, prayer. Throughout the letter, Paul's been praying for, for his church family. He loves them. He keeps lifting them up in prayer. Here he asks that they would pray for him. He needs prayer. A life of apprenticeship to Jesus is one of unceasing prayer, which is uh, moment by moment acknowledging our need for God. And praying without ceasing simply means that we speak first and most to God about everything. First and most to God about everything. And as we do that, here's the cool bit, as we do that, God changes us and, and starts to shift our will and, and our desires and our affections, and he makes us more like Jesus who trusted the Father perfectly and lived in communion with him. So the more we practice unceasing prayer by the power of the Spirit, not by our own white knuckling, by the power of the Spirit, we are now aligned and conformed to the image of Christ who trusted the Father perfectly. Next, um, scripture meditation. Um, I'll come back to the, the Holy Kiss one. Scripture meditation. Paul uses strong terms here. He's, he puts them under oath. Read this letter to everyone in the church. That's because there were issues that needed to be dealt with and everyone needed to hear them. But he wanted everyone in the church to process these things. And um, uh, Peter, um, one of the uh, apostles, one of the disciples, uh, he says in one of his letters that the writings of Paul, uh, he refers to them as, as scripture, as, as the word of God. And so Paul is saying, read this among the people and discuss, ingest, chew, meditate on it. And not only that, um, but like I just talked to you about, Paul is bringing all of scripture to bear on the Thessalonians. He will do this, Ezekiel, Genesis 22, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, like he's loading all that in and he's bringing scripture to bear. Scripture, meditation, being in the word of God, letting it transform the way we see the world, reshape our imaginations so it reshapes the way we inhabit the world in which we live. He speaks through his word. Third, life together. Um, Paul tells them to greet each other with a holy kiss. Um, Dane didn't put that in the, the greeting time bit for next week. Um, but, but this, is, this is a really important bit. Um, the holy kiss, this is a common cultural practice um, for, for the Middle Eastern world, for the Mediterranean world. Um, and it, it signaled that there was unity, that there was harmony, that there was, um, there was peace and unity between people. Right? It's, it's a familial gesture. Family members would do this to show that there was unity, to show that there was peace. And Paul calls it a holy kiss. So that's what? A set-apart kiss. Why does he call it a holy kiss? Why not just a kiss like everyone else did? Because they are now the family of God. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And so what he's saying is, when you greet your brother and sister in Christ, you do it in unity and reconciliation and shalom and peace because you are a people pulled out of darkness, put into the light to be his holy priests to a world that's so screwed up and so broken and has no clue what they're doing. They revel in their polarization. They enjoy backbiting and fighting, but you, you have a holy kiss because you are family, you are brothers and sisters, and you stand as a witness to God's truth in this wandering and lost world. And you do that through life together. You don't do that in isolation, just thinking abstract thoughts. It's incarnate. It's in the messiness of all of this. It's in the, the, the difficulty of getting up and getting dressed and getting your kids to church, eating food together, enjoying life together, suffering through life together. Now, um, I, I think it's important to do this because um, I, I know I've thrown a lot of scripture at you this morning. That's okay. You're, you're smart, smart people. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's important for us to see the integrity of the scripture and how Paul has been doing this whole thing throughout all of Thessalonians. So turn with me back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 through 13. Knowing all the stuff we just talked about, listen to what Paul says now in light of all that we just talked about. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 through 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God, our Father, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he just say? He said, here's how our Lord is sanctifying you. Get involved in each other's lives and start acting like you love each other. Die to self. Live for the other's good. And as you are involved in life together, you will begin to become more and more like Christ. It is in the messiness of community life. It's in the patience and long-suffering of loving others while differing in opinions of politics and masks and no masks and vaccines and no vaccines and, and music and media and all that stuff. It's in the forgiveness extended to the one who has hurt you. It's in the generosity extended by us to others in need. It's in the joy of worshiping together, learning together, serving together, and suffering together that we become conformed to the image of our faithful Savior in the ordinary, everyday acts of faithfulness that aren't highlighted, that aren't put on the big screen. It's in those ordinary, everyday acts of faithfulness and love extended to each other that we are being conformed to the image of Christ by the power of his Spirit working through his people. So, by the way, one more note on that. Why, 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 why? The scripture in a number of places tell us that we are to meet together, not forsake the gathering? Is it because God's just, he's, he's a meeting person and he wants to take attendance, right? It's because he wants our flourishing. It's because he wants 
our flourishing and he knows our flourishing is found in us becoming like Jesus. And we are formed in the image of Jesus as we feast on his word together, as we commune with him daily in prayer and with each other, and as we live life with his people through the power of his spirit. He wants our flourishing, therefore he calls us together. Now, um, so you can again see why the seven practices of apprenticeship that we've pressed on so, so much begin with scripture meditation, unceasing prayer, and life together. Kind of that foundational triad. And it's because as his apprentices, he's calling us to be like him. He's our master. And an apprentice is to become like their master. So sanctification is really important for us. It's a big theological word, but it's an everyday reality that we need to be able to understand, to communicate, and live into. And so sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus to the power of his spirit. Guys, the great aim of life is to image Jesus. Like, what's life about? It's to become like him. That we might love our God and love others well, and it's amazing. The king of shalom, the king of peace, calls us in to partner with him in the restoration of all things. Yet he will do it. He will bring it about. So with that, um, let me leave you with this promise of Jesus. This is stunning. Um, and it's so often quickly read over. But let this promise brighten your day. This is a promise from the lips of Jesus himself. Um, before he goes to the cross, he has a long conversation with, with, uh, with the disciples, um, with his good friends there. And um, he tells them this regarding the future coming of the kingdom and, and his return. He made this happily ever after promise to them. Hold on to this. Matthew 13, verse 43. Then, when he comes back, right, his return, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our father who loves us. We are not yet what we ought to be. We are not yet what we want to be. We are not yet what we hope to be in another world. But still, we are not as we once used to be. By his grace, though, we are what we are, just followers of Christ being conformed to his image. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <laughs> you are so good to us. Lord Jesus, thank you um, for your faithfulness exhibited in your life and your death and your resurrection and your, your ministry to us, even now as we speak by the power of your spirit. And so I wanna thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not um, just brought us to life and left us to fend on our own, but you are with us, changing us, conforming us. Lord, may we shine as the sun in the kingdom of our Father for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.